dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sitting down with Glenn Hugo, the winemaker for Gerard Winery in Napa Valley. Glenn is originally from Texas, but his love of wine brought him to Napa. After working in the industry as a general manager at a wine bar and a few other odds and ends in the industry, he found his way to being a harvest intern at Gerard Winery. And as they say, the rest is history. Today, he is the winemaker for a winery where you can taste all of Napa under one cellar door. With 16 nested AVAs in Napa, Gerard Winery harvests fruit from nine of them. All wine is produced in small batch fermentations in a new state-of-the-art, ambitiously efficient winery. Not only are they passionate about producing wine, they are dedicated to preserving the land. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. I am your host, Lori, and I am here today with the winemaker for Gerard Winery in Napa, Glenn Hugo. And it is a pleasure to meet you today. So welcome, Glenn. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Nice to join you. Thank you. Um, and the first question I always, always ask is, um, you know, the kind of the origin story. So you're actually a Texan. And I got to say, you don't have that that Texan, you know, drawl or drawl, brawl, whatever you call it in Texas. You don't have that. So how did we get into wine in Texas? Well, um, I, I got into wine through the restaurant industry. So um, I served, uh, you know, a decade and a half in the restaurant industry and, um, fell in love with wine through that. And the, the whole idea of food and wine and how important they are together, uh, was the, what lured me out to, uh, eventually to make it out to Napa to want to learn how to make wine. So, uh, my wife and I had come out here quite often as guests and eventually we uh, made a decision actually on the night of our honeymoon. Uh, to quit our jobs in, in Texas and move oh. out to Napa. <laughs> Nothing like so big change to our, big change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big big leaps of faith. Um, but yeah, we, we moved out here in 2003, um, about six months after we married. So wow, and uh, Texas was our was our home, but and we still love Texas. But um, this is kind of where we felt, or I felt, was best. Uh, to become involved with winemaking. You know, this is uh, Napa and Sonoma, for that matter, are two areas that are, you know, obviously renowned for wine. So if you're going to learn to make wine in America, I don't know that there's much better place. So that's what drew, drew us out here. But yeah, not much of an accent. I, I When I am back in Texas, uh, I start to use y'all a little more. <laughs> and, 
slips out a little bit, but otherwise, yeah, not, I don't have much of the draw. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I know that feeling, um, when I speak to somebody with brogue, my brogue comes out and I'm not natural. I don't naturally have a brogue, but it, it automatically comes out the, the Irish in me somehow has created its own, its own brogue. So I understand that you go back and you just start picking up where, where you almost left off. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so do you have an aha wine? Do you have a, do you have a wine? in your memory that you're like, wow, this is what wine is. And okay, this is some good stuff. Yeah, actually, uh, my wife, Pam and I, uh, we had a moment like that many years ago when we had um, a friend come to town who was a chef friend of ours and worked in the restaurant industry with us. And he had long been uh, a fan of Chateau Neuf de Pop Wines and I, I was still young at the time, still learning. Both of us were learning. And while I had some knowledge of it, I wasn't as, as knowledgeable about the region and the wines. But I'd found an old bottle of um, Bocastel and this little little liquor store in Dallas uh, that, you know, normally you wouldn't go there for wine, for sure. But they happened to have some. Uh, it looks like it would look like somebody had bought it years ago and they'd kind of forgotten about it. And it was on the bottom of the shelf with the, one of the you know, old school little little reduced stickers on there, like, you know, the gun. <laughs> and so so I bought it, not thinking you know much of it, whether it was going to be any good or not. And when that friend finally came over to dinner, we opened it. Initially, we were all kind of like, whoa, this is funky. This is weird. There's a lot of weird things happening with this right now. Luckily, we didn't just, you know, discount it completely. We pushed it aside, opened up something else. And about 15 minutes later, my wife uh, stuck her nose back in the glass and she was like, oh my gosh, you know, let's come back to this one. And for about 15 minutes, we just could not stop describing the wine. I mean, we were, we were, we barely even tasted it. We we're just smelling all these amazing characteristics in the wine, getting the most detail oriented we've ever been in describing wines. You know, it wasn't just mushrooms. It was like mushrooms with, you know, butter and thyme and, yeah. you know, just really felt like you know we could see every little aspect of the wine and for us that was that was like just mind-blowing like we've never never seen a wine you know have so much expression and it was about 15 minutes of that and then it died but oh well uh, at least you didn't miss it (laughs) no exactly good thing your wife was there (laughs) right for sure so um so you actually started uh, as a harvest intern and then you've gone through kind of the, a few steps, a few ranks to get to winemaker. So how did you come to, were you a harvest um, intern at Gerard? Yes, I was. I uh, actually started when I moved to Napa, uh, you know, knocked on a bunch of doors. I got a, I got a job um, in a winery working in the, in the tasting room. And then I was working, I got a job in a wine bar here in Napa. And at the time, this is 2003, it's pretty sleepy town, Naples, downtown Napa, hardly anybody yeah. go, would go there. In fact, we'd never gone to downtown Napa every time we'd come out here previously. But this little wine bar was kind of the spot where all the locals hung out and I got to meet a lot of winemakers. Uh, it's where I eventually met, uh, at the time, Gerard's um, uh, consulting winemaker, Marco De Giulio, and he's he's the one who you know, took me in for 2006 harvest. And that was my first harvest at Girard. And I stuck around. They offered me a full-time job. And 
for a while I was the only hourly employee because we were that small back then. Wow. But I, uh, to your point, I moved up the ranks from, you know, an intern to a full-time position, eventually the seller master, eventually uh, the assistant winemaker. And then 2010, I uh, became the winemaker of Girard. So a fun. That a really fun, wasn't uh, that long of a, right? You said 2006 to 2010. That's a pretty quick incline there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel very fortunate. It's, it's, uh, it's a very, the industry as a whole is this way, but Girard especially was very welcoming. Uh, teaching me, you know, as much as I'm willing to learn. And, you know, the industry is, is much like that for a lot of people's experience that come to it from other walks of life. Um, you know, I, it wasn't that I hadn't have knowledge of wine per se, because I'd, I'd been involved with it from the restaurant industry side, but it was more in the, the knowledge levels and, you know, tasting and, you know, the ability to describe wines, but from production to learn the chemistry side of things and the science of it all. Um, you know, once you, people see that you're, you're passionate about wine, you're passionate about what you do, you're hardworking, um, a lot of doors open up for you in this industry. So, and I'll say that, you know, we've had so many interns over the years, you know, since I was an intern that have either stayed with us and grown through our ranks or, uh, have moved on to other, other wineries, um, but are now, you know, winemakers, assistant winemakers, um, enologists, et cetera, uh, wineries, not only in Napa, now they've, I've, I've got, we've got people all over the world working at wineries that work with us at one point or another. So I'm always very proud of that. Cause I think that's what's, what is the beauty of this industry? It's very welcoming in that regard. So I have to, to agree. Yeah. I think that, um, it, the industry more so than a lot of others recognizes passion as a very important aspect of success in it. And they go with, well, you can learn this as you go along, but you need to have this passion in, in order to, you know, it, it's a baby, right? You got to coddle the baby, the wine's a baby, you got to coddle it. And if you don't have the passion to coddle it, to, to make sure it gets nudged in the right direction without over, you know, over pushing it. Right. So I think that is true in the wine industry. Yeah, for sure. And I've always been proud of us, um, you know, continue, continuing that same ideology that uh, if you find people like that, to, to do your best to encourage that, encourage them to be a part of it. Do you, um, so as a harvest intern, you spent a lot of time in the vineyards, right? And now do you get to spend as much time in the vineyard? Where do you prefer to be do you like being in the winery or the vineyard um both i mean i i wouldn't pick one or the other over the other but uh you know vineyards for us are you know it's where everything starts so it's important for us to be a part of that um you know we have i feel very fortunate that we have the opportunity to work with our own estate fruit we have we have several vineyards of our own that we work with and we own and we're involved with the decision making there but um Opposite to that, we we work with a lot of growers. Um, there's quite a few that have been around since I started at Girard, and we still work with them. So uh, those long-term relationships with growers are really important to us. We continue to build them. Um, we we have some that we've had for over a decade plus, and then we have some that you know may have, we may have picked up in the last couple of years. But you know, when you work with a grower and there's a mutual respect there, and there's an understanding of what you know the goals are. And, you know, to be, you know, from their perspective, they're looking to work with people that they can be proud to say that they took, you know, this product 
that they worked really hard to do the best job with and made it into something that, you know, they would be proud of. They don't want their grapes to just go to anywhere and, you know, that they could care less of what the quality is. Uh, we work with people that, that want to know that it's going into a quality wine and that we take the passion that they, they get delivered to us and continue with it to make it the best wine possible. So um, it's, it's really great to have that kind of nuance. You know, I, I often, ref, you know, use the restaurant industry as examples, but it's much like a chef finding, you know, great purveyors mm -hmm. to work with for their meat or their seafood or their produce, uh, dairy, et cetera. You know, they want to know that it's coming from a quality product. And on the opposite end, those producers want to know that, you know, it's going into something that, that will have an end product that's amazing and delicious. So um, we have a very similar kind of uh, understanding with our growers as well. So love being involved with them, love being involved in the vineyards when we, when they can. But, you know, when we take that fruit from them and get it into the cellar, that's when we start doing, you know, our portion of it and we're, you know, our side of the, the magic happens. So equally important and, not, and equally fun and challenging. So you um, coming from the other side of it, the restaurant side yeah. and retail um, being the manager of, of that little place called the Bounty Hunter Wine Bar. Um, do you think, you know, there, it's often said that, that making wine is the easy part, selling it is really the difficult part. So you being on the other side of it, do you think that that plays a role like as being in the restaurant industry and, and knowing what people purchase, do those aspects play into a role as, as you are trying to make your wine into, you know, okay, this I know from the restaurant side is what people are looking for or from retail. And so I'm going to take that and put it into how I develop the wine. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, that's definitely a part of our, our mentality uh, throughout the process and Ultimately, what we bring to the final bottling is something that we, we hope that, um, you know, the people that are fans of our wine will enjoy. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about, you know, the restaurant side of it taught me about food and wine. So that aspect alone is, is a big part of, you know, decisions we make in the process uh, while we're making wine. And I've always, I've always been, you know, attuned to that. I try to be at least to say that I want this wine to work, you know, on the dinner table. I want it to be part of, you know, somebody's experience with their friends and family, you know, during a nice meal. Uh, so it's, it's always kind of in our mindset, you know, what are we doing with our wines to help attribute, you know, the, the best level of quality and, and um, styles of winemaking that would, you know, work well with food and, and just the general uh, idea of being a part of a dinner table is, is always in the top of my mind. And, you know, there are, there are things we make decisions on throughout the process from beginning through fermentation to even barrel aging to the blending process that help us kind of hopefully deliver on that promise uh, of what styles we are trying to make. So it's mm -hmm. definitely a consideration. So I have opened um, your uh, 2017 Old Vine Zinfandel. And I got to tell you, I am a Zin maniac. Like, I was a Zen fan. My husband and I were both Zen fans long before it was cool to be Zen, you know, to be a Zen fan. And then, you know, sadly, I think Zinfandel has kind of dropped in um, 
in the public's eye a bit, mostly, I, th- I think a lot because they got a little out of control with, <laughs> with, you know, it got to the point where it was, you know, 16, 17% alcohol and a big bomb. And I think the problem was they weren't balanced because you can have 16, 17% Zins today. And if they're quality Zins, they're, you know, they're excellent. So tell me about this Zin. First of all, it says old vine. So for my listeners, there is no true definition, legal definition of old vine, right? Somebody can call it old vine if they would like. So why are you calling this old vine? How, where are these vines from and what are their ages? Yeah, uh, you're correct. I've actually been through an audit with the TTB uh, with that very wine years ago. Uh, and I even asked them that, like, are you are you going to make a decision and decide what old vine means? And they they, they didn't want to. They, they were more just interested in why we would use that that reference. So, But we, we decided to use it uh, initially just because it was a distinction that we are trying to source wine from older vines. To your point, there isn't uh, there isn't a benchmark of what that means for us. Um, there's, there's several vineyards we, we use, but there's two that are the primary part of this blend. There's a vineyard that is in the south, southern eastern part of Napa. Now, these vines are more in the 50 year range. So okay. not, you know, not by any means. They're not century old, but they're not. But so that's not, pretty you know, old, right? Too. Yeah. That's still pretty old. <laughs> As somebody who's come uh, come up to his uh, half century mark, I, I consider that old <laughs> old enough. Uh, but they are they are part of the blend that is more uh, a little more lively, and they bring a little more fruit to the blend. Um, they're a little more racy too. The other portion, the other vineyard I was referring to, is up in the north northern part of Calistoga, and it's this vineyard that um, these vines are in the hundred. 100 plus year range um these uh are we're in our fourth generation of working with the fourth generation owners of the property and um these 100 plus year old vines you know are also very interesting they make there's a little more complexity to them in some ways but not necessarily as much fruit forwardness and so combining these two are important to us we could easily just bottle the 100 year old plus vines and, and I guess that would be very old vines but um, we feel like the combination of the two is what's important um, they, they work together really well when we blend them um, you know and so old vine is, 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 is a distinction for us although a lot of people may use it there are some that are anti old vine designates because they don't feel like uh, that's necessary but we like to use it to just distinguish that we are sourcing fruit from these older vines you know zen has got a lot of history in california unfortunately we've ripped out a lot of the zinfandel in california to replant it to you know in, in napa it's usually because they're going to replant it to cabernet mm-hmm. um so we're we're happy to still be able to support and find fruit of that age and of that quality that we can offer in the glass and to your point uh, a moment ago we we tried to make this wine you know using your term balance and you know as winemakers i think we all we we try not overuse that term because it gets used a lot but i i love the term because that's what exactly what we're looking for we want you to see that fruit we want you to see that complexity um we use three types of oak in our zen uh, american french and hungarian oak um we actually have a barrel that uh we had designed with one of our barrel makers at cooper juice 
Um, this Cooper is made a single barrel for us that has French and Hungarian staves throughout the barrel. And then the heads of the barrels on both sides is American oak. Um, it is so it's cool. actually referred to, yeah, it's referred to as a fusion barrel, as they call it. And this fusion barrel um, helps incorporate the three different characteristics all in one. And we've, we've found that it integrates really well with Zen. Um, I, I often describe it as the American oak, adding some of that kind of smoky, meaty note. Uh, the Hungarian brings a lot of different kinds of spices, including kind of that Christmas spice arrangement cardamom. of like cinnamon. Yeah, cardamom, cardamom. there you go. Um, and then the, the French oak is that more classic structure that we expect a French oak, but also some of those more like mocha, vanilla characteristics. So the three work really well with Zen, and that's one of our, our mainstay barrels that we, we use for this particular wine. It and is, we're, we hope that you find a balance like that. Yeah, it, um, it's, it's, in the, it's definitely dark fruit, um, and the cardamom is what it pops out to me, which I absolutely love. And uh, it's funny. Uh, well, not that it's funny on the, on the nose, there's like a little whiff of, um, cocoa powder, like mm -hmm. as if the powder kind of blows past your nose, but on the palate, there's more mocha on the palate. It's more of a, you know, of an actual chocolate mocha thing on, on the palate. Um, but it definitely, it definitely is balanced. I don't know. The alcohol is 15. Um, and it definitely doesn't scream out alcohol at all. Um, but it is lively. It, it does have, it does have a lot of fresh fruit coming out on it, but, and we're going to, I'm going to let it sit a little bit to open up a bit. Cause I just opened it about 10 minutes before. So I'm sitting here swirling away, but I yeah. love, I love the nose of it, the cardamom and, and the dark fruit is wonderful. And then that mocha is perfect. Um, it even ha it has, it has on, on the palate, it has just, um, and it probably will come out more, uh, a little of that white pepper that you expect in, in a Zinfandel right now, it's more, um, kind of on the back palate, but mm -hmm. it's there. It's, it's beautiful. Um, Thank and it you. definitely, definitely doesn't taste like 15 it. So kudos. Cause it's, it's uh, very balanced again, that word, but it, you know, everything is integrated. The tannins are there. Um, you can actually get, I, I can't say I can get Hungarian, but th there you can do the, I can get a little bit of the, the French oak is, is there, but it's kind of mm -hmm. cool. So can, I was going to ask about the barrel later, but since you brought it up, so they, they produce the barrels by just sourcing different staves, the, the French, the American, and the Hungarian staves, and then they produce the barrel. Is it equal amounts of, of it generally? Yeah. So we, when we first did this, uh, this is back in, gosh, it was when I was still the assistant winemakers when we started uh, testing these barrels. So I guess it would be around 2008, 2009, we started the project. And the idea was that we were, we were purchasing each of those individually and still using them in our Zin plant. Um, I think we're going to talk Petit Syrah as well, but that, that's another wine that we do this with. And the idea that they came to us with was to create one barrel that had all three. And, you know, initially we were a little reluctant to say, you know, what's the point? 
we can buy each of them individually and still blend them. But what we found was that the, ultimately the wine, it felt like it integrated even better with the three being in one barrel. And what they do is they, they basically um, came to us and said, you know, we can do this all different kinds of ways. Like how, how much would you want to have? Do you want this much, you know, one more French than American Hungarian, you know, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, we also had to get into the discussion of how, how the toasting levels would be on it. But we did a trial for three years um, to eventually end up with the barrel we use now, um, a certain toast level that we decided on. But the, the makeup of the barrel is, if you did the math on it, considering um, the staves are French and Hungarian, but the, the heads are American, it actually works out to approximately a third, a third, a third of each of the three. So it's a, it's an equal mix of all three of them uh, as far as surface area that is in contact with the wine approximately. So uh, it's, it's pretty much an equal mixture of all three. And I've, I've heard of these fusion barrels before, and I, you're, I think like the only, like the second winery that I've heard is, is using them. So the, these are being produced specifically for you. Yeah. Um, at the time we were one of the first people to do it with them. I think, I think for the longest time, if you Googled it, I was one of the first, you know, uh, comments on the barrels of using them, um, uh, testimonies, but I, I know more people are doing it now and, yeah. and you know, uh, we've had some other projects we've done, uh, on the side for different labels that we've, we've done different versions of this, like, you know, because again, you can choose what the mixture is. So, uh, we've done some that, that are just American and Hungarian and no French and, you know, just different, uh, iterations of them. So, but the one that we chose, we've continued with for the, the Zen and Petit Syrah program for that matter. Um, we've been using that same barrel for going on 10 plus years now. So are you, when you're producing your small batches, are you putting however many barrels you have of this? Is all of your Zin going into fusion barrels or are you still also putting some Zin in American oak, some Zin in French oak? some Zin and Hungarian? I do do uh, play with some of the individual oak as well. Um, so it's not 100% just fusion, okay. uh, but it is the primary barrel that we use for it. Okay, yeah. cool. Some years, I, some years I feel like, you know, we need to, to put a little more French maybe, or maybe one year we might need a little more of the American influence, et cetera. So I do like having that flexibility as needed. Okay. And now uh, Gerard Winery, the winery itself was built, it's relatively new. It was only 2018 that it was redesigned, I guess, or was it? Yeah, this current current winery. Now the, the brand, the, the winery originally started in the 70s. Uh, it was a father and son and um, current ownership, we, we took over in the, the early 2000s. So, um, but the, the name, the, the, the father and son that started it, uh, they were focused uh, in Oakville was the, where the location was. When we bought it, um, we started moving around. We were, we, we were much smaller back then. And so we were doing some custom crush scenarios at different smaller wineries. And eventually this uh, piece of land that we're on now came available to us. And so it was a vineyard that we, we, we ended up ripping out what was there because there was problems with the vineyard. And uh, ultimately built the new Girard Winery in 2018. 
and then we planted new vineyards around it as well. So we have some new new vineyards uh, as part of the property as well. Very nice. And it's it, the winery was built being dedicated to really being green, right? There's a lot of um, things that allow you to be green. Yeah, we when we're continuing that focus, uh, you know, a more sustainable uh, outlook. Um, you know, we some of the nowadays they become easier and ob more obvious uh with solar and you know even little things like led lights everywhere uh that are also motion censored i mean you don't think about how much energy you use in a production facility until you start finding ways of saving it and then you realize wow all along we could have saved a lot of energy so yeah. it's been a <coughs> excuse me it's been a process for us to try and be as efficient as possible um another entirely you know, beyond just energy, it's a huge focus for us is water. You know, we're in, we're in California, and we we're in the midst of another drought um, series of years, and water just continues to be a challenge. So uh, it takes you know it takes a lot of water to make wine, uh, for, especially when it comes to cleanliness and making sure we clean properly and sanitize. So we've found a lot of ways to to conserve our water sources resources as well, and um, and sometimes that, you know, it takes capital uh, expenditures to do so. But as a company, we've come to realize that the long-term benefits of that outweigh any initial uh, investment. So every year we, we tend to put more money into new ideas that will try and save us uh, those resources as well. That's awesome. Now, there are 16 nested AVAs in Napa. And you source fruit from, I think, like nine of them, or you have estate fruit in, in around nine of them. So that's a huge, huge chunk of Napa that you're getting um, that you're getting fruit from. And so you're really like all of Napa under one cellar or in one cellar door. So like, how how do you manage? going all over the place. Like we're talking about you being in the vineyard and knowing when you want to harvest the fruit and do all of that. So, you know, people benefit from having all of Napa in the one cellar door, but how does that make your life? <laughs> uh, it just means you're on the road a bit, um, you know, <laughs> harvest, especially usually up really early to get out and start looking at vineyards bright and early to make those decisions on when you're going to pick. Um, that's just part of the harvest routine for the winemakers. Um, and then, you know, you eventually make your way. Uh, you have, every morning you kind of have a path that you choose to, to <laughs> you know, to make your way to the winery ultimately. Um, and once the fruit's coming in, so you can start checking in on things at the winery. But uh, yeah, the routine is um, get out and taste grapes. In fact, I often joke about it, you know, by the time harvest's over, the last thing in the world I want to eat is a grape. Like, <laughs> you go to a party or a restaurant, and you've got grapes on the you know charcuterie board and cheese board, and you're like, bah, no more grapes. <laughs> um, it, it just wrecks you after a while. You're just like, ah, can't eat another grape. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's important to be out and tasting. We, we also pull samples and run chemistry on it as well, but we've long been of the mindset that uh, you've got to get out and taste the grapes and, and see how they're maturing. So it is a big part of that. And I'm, I'm very proud of, you know, as you bring that up about all the diversity, um, you know, it's great to have our, your own estate, but also being able to source from other growers. That means that we've, we've got all these different 
grapes in different styles coming in the door. And when we sit down to make our blends, we have uh, all that diversity to play with. So, you know, much like a back to kitchen reference, you know, it's a, it's a lot of, it's like a chef having a lot of different resources to make the dish with. Um, I think of it that way for us and all our grape sourcing throughout, throughout Napa Valley. So I'm going to ask a difficult question. So all right. do you have a favorite AVA that you enjoy the fruit from? Um, that's hard. I mean, I probably the ne ne next most difficult thing would be what's your favorite wine. But, um, for me, I guess part of it is because when I first started in, in Napa, I worked, started working at, in Rutherford. So Rutherford's long been an AVA that I've always kind of been, a, you know, naturally attached to in some ways, but, um, the dust. It's not to say that, yeah, the Rutherford dust. Uh, it's it's not to say that I don't enjoy wines from all over Napa, and um, I appreciate the diversity of all of that. I mean, it's you know, people. I think a lot of people don't realize that Napa is really not that big. I mean, we're thirty miles by five. You know, it's it's really not a massive area, and in this this one area, to have all those different different appellations, um, it just it's pretty it's pretty crazy to have all that complexity available to us to work with. So, uh, well, I may point to Rutherford as, as one of my favorite, I, I appreciate them all. So is nine working, am I correct in nine of the AVAs? That you... uh, yeah, I believe so. I okay. think we're there. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that really is incredible to, to get your fingers into each of those AVAs and they each have their own, characteristics so when you're blending uh you know are you in your brain are you thinking okay well rutherford provides this so i'm going to take some of this from here and you know diamond mountain does this and howell does this like are, are you are you doing these formulations per se in your brain of okay this offers this this offers this if i bring these together i can get this yeah, I think you inherently you have certain things in your mind uh, that you just appreciate about those regions and what the wines bring. Uh, ultimately, I will say that that we we do sit down and when we're making our blends, we will taste through everything and make notes along the way, and then we start playing with the blend and say, "Well, it's doing really well, but we really need to add some more backbone, some tannin." Let's say, "All right, well, you know, you know, the cab we had from X Y Z." vineyard and, and you know xyz region that that could do, really help us bring that into the blend uh or maybe it's already in the blend but now we're going to increase it we're going to double the amount we have in there um yeah it's definitely something you just keep you know even in advance of, of starting the blend you have a lot of things that are kind of preconceived in your mind especially if you've been working with them for a long time um they're kind of just naturally things you gravitate towards mm -hmm. However, I'll say that every blend kind of comes together a little differently. You know, you, you, even if you thought you knew where you're heading, you might start blending and suddenly you're like, ah, you oh. know, back, back to my uh, restaurant references, another dash of salt, you know, a splash mm -hmm. of pepper. Uh, you know, it just, you start to, I, I like to us to be open-minded to the fact that, you know, as much as we, we learn every year, there's always new lessons to be learned. And, um, I, I would hope that even if I've been doing this for 30, 40 years, that I'll still be open-minded to that and, you know, walk into every situation, every blend that way. Let, let's talk a little bit about the um, 
Petite Syrah. So this is a 2018 um, Gerard Petite Syrah. So where, where is this fruit coming from? Is this multiple uh, AVAs also? And now a word from our sponsor. Dracaena Wines loves to give back. There are so many fur babies that deserve to find their forever home. We would love to be able to help as many as possible. If you are part of a nonprofit organization or know of a nonprofit organization that would like to hold a fundraiser, please contact us at contact at DracaenaWines.com or visit our website, DracaenaWines.com, to fill out the form. How does the fundraiser work? It is super simple and costs your group absolutely nothing. Together, we will choose a month that your group will be sponsored. During the month, you promote the fundraiser just like any other event you'd hold. At the end of the month, we will donate 20% of the sales to your organization. The donations will be made in the name of each individual who purchased the wine so that you know exactly who helped the animals. Our goal is to raise as much funds as we possibly can and to help as many animals as possible. So please help us help as many fur babies as we possibly can. Yeah, um, so this is this is a fun one. And I'll, I'll reference, uh, as we talk about it, I'll, I'll back up to the Zen a bit too. Um, the, the, some of the petites are off for this blend is coming from that same really old vine vineyard that we talked about for the Zen, the Calistoga location. Um, another, there's a couple other smaller uh, petites Syrah um, vineyards that we source in Calistoga. They're not as old, but they're uh, important parts of the blend. And then there's another, uh, I call it a larger source that we're involved with uh, in the state property that is in an area of Napa. It's not its own ADA, but uh, is referred to as Pope Valley, which is basically on the other side of Howl Mountain from where we sit in Calistoga. And um, I, again, I feel like they all kind of work together, uh, even having those older vine, Petit Syrah grapes that had a lot of complexity. We need some of that more fresh, vibrant characteristic coming from the younger vines. Um, and Petit Syrah, historically, when I first got introduced to it, you know, well, a lot of the examples I tried just were over the top tannin, you know, rip the enamel off your teeth. And uh, I just, you know, I couldn't appreciate it beyond the first, you know, half glass or so. Um, and so with us, we, we've long tried to make this a little more approachable. Um, it still has big bull tannins. <coughs> Um, we look forward to it um, having a little more complexity, a little more, you know, um, bright fruit and a little more acidity and just making it a more approachable style. And the reason I mentioned uh, uh, I was going to talk about Zen a bit is part of the way we do that is we do blend a little Zen in the Petit Syrah. Okay. And I'll also mention that we do the same with the Zen. We, we put a little Petit Syrah on our Zen traditionally as well. Um, and the Zen helps kind of balance some of that, that you know, massive tannin out and make it a little more approachable. Uh, but all, a lot of it also goes back to how we handle it uh, during harvest and fermentations um, by, by pulling it off of the skins a little earlier so we don't get too aggressive of the tannin structure. So I love, I love Petit Syrah. You know, I often talk about when you're in Napa or you're in the industry, you get invited to a barbecue or somebody's house or dinner. And a lot of people will show up, you know, here everybody's going to show up with their big huge napa cab it's you know they're 
$200 bottle of cab and it's fun to, to try and enjoy. But, you know, we slide a bottle of the pizza on the table and it's usually the first thing to go. Uh, it's just a really fun wine uh, to enjoy with friends and family. And um, even, even on the dinner table, it works really well with food as well. It is. And I think that's a surprising to a lot of people. I think, I think Petite Syrah, um, well, first of all, you know, Petite Syrah and then Syrah. So people get confused over that concept, but Petite Syrah to me is uh, a beautiful wine with that barbecue, with that smokiness, with, with all of that, um, as well as Zinfandel. I mean, I think Zinfandel and smoky foods that, you know, um, pulled porks, you know, pulled pork sandwich, something like that is, is like the marriage made in heaven. Um, and I can see why you would put Agreed. them, put them together. Um, yeah. so let's talk because Gerard all does all of, well, you've been there for a long time and you, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that you were a lot smaller back then than you are now. So when you started with Gerard, how, how many cases on average, do you think they were producing back then uh back then we were about six thousand cases or so i think okay and Pretty where... small. Um, we're more in the kind of the the 50 to sixty thousand range right now okay, and that's so... that's what the understanding that we make quite a few wines that um that are really smaller production that uh we only offer at the the tasting room and through wine clubs and such um i mean we make a, a little over 20 different wines so and that includes a, a handful of different Cabernets from, you know, um, from the sub AVAs, you know, mountain districts like Diamond, Beater, and Atlas, Howl Mountain. We even have a Rutherford and Oakville cab, Calistoga cab. So um, cab alone is a big part of that. But those, those, the ones I just mentioned beyond our standard Napa Valley that goes out in distribution, um, those are much smaller production. But, um, and then, you know, our, our Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay kind of make up the next highest tier as far as production. Uh, but Napa Valley Cab is still our, our standard Napa Valley Cab one is still our number one uh, production wine. And, and that tends to be in the, you know, around 10 to 15,000 cases every year. Okay. So um, it's a few wines that make up the big chunk of that. And then we have this whole selection of smaller uh, production items. I saw that on your fun, website. Yeah, I saw that on your website. Yeah. You have you have like sub AVAs or nested AVA designated cabs, you know, and that that must be. I'm assuming you do, but I don't know. I'm a, there's got to be a tasting that's available to people to do a cross section of those cabs to um, taste what the difference of each sub AVA offers yeah, to that wine. Was- we usually have a tasting. Uh, it's an option at the winery uh, that's focused just on those caps, so you can get a you know kind of a, a, a really nice kind of picture of of trying cabernets from these different districts in Napa. And that that always blows my mind because it's cab. You know? So so many people are always like, "Oh, a cab is a cab is a cab," and that is so not that it. You can have a cab that is the same exact alcohol, you know, it could be 100% cab solve. So everything is the same, except you just change where that's coming from. So like a Howl Mountain versus a diamond is completely two different, you know, animals. Yeah. And I would, I would go as far as to say, Lori, like I'm getting back to my uh, restaurant references. Um, 
you know, even if you and I were, let's, let's use this quick example. You and I are both winemakers, much like we could be both chefs and we could be given the exact same grapes to work with, right? Whether from the same exact vineyard, they're literally from the same portion of the vineyard. Um, and there's a lot of decisions that we're going to make during harvest on how we, how we ferment uh, what temperatures and how long and how much we extend it, uh, even how long we do extended macerations in, you know, with the grapes being soaked in the, in the juice for extended periods of time. Um, and then at some point, you're, as you age, you're going to make decisions on your barrels, which is just like you know, a chef. As chefs, if we had the same pieces of meat, you know, everything we did, like you broiled yours and I decided to, to grill mine and you used uh, a dry rub and I marinated mine in a, in a sauce, a marinade. And then, you know, what sides did you decide on versus mine? So all along the way, we made all these choices. Well, it's the same with wine. So we could be, you know, pulling from the same region and totally get different wines. Even if we were pulling it from the same exact vineyard, there will be nuances that will be similar. And that's why you could say like, you might be able to pick out this as a diamond mountain cab blindly tasting it um, because there are nuances to it, but there's definitely a distinction uh, from region to region to region. And it's fun to be able to play with all those different regions and be able to offer them to, to people, you know, as their own individual bottlings. Um, equally fun for us is to make that Napa Valley version that, you know, now we get to work with all those different options to play with. So we can sprinkle a little bit of diamond out. We can sprinkle in some Rutherford as, as needed. And all these different regions kind of come into play to make one wine. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. Mm. So can you explain, because you do all of your <clears throat> wine as small batch fermentations. So can you please explain what is meant by a small batch fermentation? And then at like what time, at what point is it not considered small batch anymore? I guess, I guess that's you know, subject to how somebody might define it. But what we do is we basically look at, at the fermentations as anything that comes in the door uh, from a particular vineyard and on a particular day, as much as possible, we're going to keep that on its own. Now that on some of our, you know, um, mountain designates or some of our, our more premium vineyards, that could be as little as two or three tons that we're going to keep separate in its own tank. Um, but let's say I'm buying, let's say I'm buying fruit from, you know, Lori's, um, or your Oakville vineyard, right? And let's say traditionally we would we would pull 20 tons from that vineyard for, for sourcing. And um, amongst those those vines that we're pulling from, you have a section that's kind of more on the you know the level part of the, the vineyard. Then you have another that's on a little hillside. You might even have one that's you know a specific clone that we want to keep segmented as well. Or maybe they're one section's older, one's younger, you know, there's you know different rootstock, there's all these different differences that could develop the decision-making of keeping them segmented. So it'd be really easy for us to just say, pick all 20 tons, bring it to the winery. We're going to put in one big tank and we'll be done with it. And we, we have some bigger lots that are, you know, in that category as far as tons, but what we'd rather do is, is determine if we want those segmented. And if so, bring those in individually. So instead of one 20 ton fermenter, we might've put that more hillside stuff. That's like eight tons in this fermenter by itself. And then we took the one that's a different clone and put it another fermenter. And that was about six cents, whatever. And you just kind of, you know, segment. And the beauty of when we build Gerard that we try and, main, main, try and maintain to today is that we, we built it with a lot of different smaller 
format vessels, okay. uh, fermenters. So we have that flexibility. Now, I, of course, I say that right now. And then during harvest, we're like, we're out. You need more. <laughs> you know? Never enough. They're never the one you need in that moment. Right, it right. never works out perfectly. But um, by giving ourselves a lot of a lot of flexibility uh, in the design of the place and, and all these different format sizes to work with, I can now take those 20 tons of your Oakville cab that we feel are unique and different and keep them separate. Now, it's possible that we may blend them back together down the road, um, but we like having the flexibility of having these different options. So that we, we, we go to blend, you know, let's say one of them had that big tannin structure that we, we needed in that moment. Maybe one shows a different type of fruit because it's a different clone and, and you know, accents different nuances of fruit characteristics. Or, you know, maybe one's just got this brighter acidity to it that just works really well, but we don't want too much of that as an example. So having them segmented means that down the road, when we go to blend, we have more options in our toolbox to play with. So as much as we can continue to do that, we do um, just to give ourselves more options for future Glenn, you know, he gets the opportunity <laughs> trying so, to be nice to future Glenn. But there you go. So I think that is a perfect time because you take all of these small batch fermentations, you take all of your uh, fruit and they're kept separate, but now it's time to blend them together. And I think that that is what artistry is really kind of about, right? So we have, this is a Absolutely. Bordeaux blend um wine and so that's a, basically what you're doing is you have these small batches and now you're going to blend them together so tell us about artistry and how you how you build this bottle well artistry is you know as you mentioned it's our our representation of a bordeaux style blend um you know we don't kid ourselves we know we're in california so we know we're not we're that it's not like we're saying that that's going to taste like a bordeaux wine and i know a lot of your viewers are aware of that but I like to point it out, we are still California uh, style and grapes are still getting riper than you, what you would see in Bordeaux. But we are using the traditional five different grape uh, varieties of grape, I should say, um, that you would normally see in Bordeaux. So in our blend, uh, it's almost always dominant cab. So usually it's in the 60 to 70% range of cab. Uh, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, and Malbec make up the rest of the blend. So those five traditional um, varietal wines are blended to make this. And, you know, much like uh, I keep alluding to with Cabernet, we have all these different Cabernets to work with. Um, in a smaller subsection, we have a, a nice variety of different Merlot to play with, different Cabernet Franc, Malbec, and Petit Verdot. And while they, there's less, less selection of different vineyards, um, even using small amounts of these other um, varietals in the blend have huge impacts. So, um, you know, I often talk about how Cabernet is, you know, as a component is, is there to be the big structure, the dark fruit, you know, tannin, um, just kind of the oomph of the wine. Uh, we then incorporate Merlot, which can have a softer side to it and help kind of uh, calm down some of those characteristics of the cab, but also bring in some, you know, really nice red fruit notes. Um, our Cabernet Francs tend to have that more floral, um, you know, a little more perfumey noses. Um, ours, we tend to get a little more bold and ripe and let a little less green. Um, so we, that's kind of the style of Franc that we like. So 
Um, that'll really add nicely to the blend as well. And then I often describe the Malbec as being uh, a mid palate lift that we look yeah. for, um, where we often are working on blends and it just kind of falls out in the middle of the palate. There's not a lot going on and they often refer to it as a donut hole. Um, so this is the donut hole filler. Um, Malbec just kind of lifts the mid palate and gives us some nice juicy characteristics. Um, they allow for that to just kind of connect the front and the back of the palate. And then the one that's probably less discussed is Petit Verdot. Uh, I like talking about Petit Verdot. Love Petit if we were Verdot. Standing, yeah, me too. Um, if we were standing in the cellar tasting through barrels, I like to make sure people try it on its own because not a lot of people are aware, you know, what it's like by itself. It has this reputation uh, as a blender. Um, and we often, as winemakers, we often talk about how it adds this big structure because it can, can add some boldness to it. But there's actually a very, you know, a, a more softer side to Petit Verdot. The fruits are really kind of more in the bluish category yes. for me. And I love that about it. It can add a nice nuance of blue fruit notes. Um, but there's also this white floral note uh, in the aromatics. It just adds a really nice touch to uh, bigger red wine blends like Cabernet blends because it just kind of creates a little background um you know I'm going to use the word pretty but it has a pretty nose and here it is this big strong bold uh grape and characteristics of wine but has a prettier side to it as well so um taking all five of those together and, and you know you know sitting down at a table with all these selections in front of us and again tasting them all individually but then starting to work up in your mind how can this blend come together uh, for us, you know, this is the moment in winemaking where there's kind of a shift from the last year and a half, two years, you've been taking care of the wine. It's, you know, there's a lot of focus on the science of it, the chemistry of the winemaking. You want to make sure the wine is healthy. That's your mm -hmm. like main goal. Um, in this moment, when we sit down to blend, we kind of do that shift uh, from the science to the artistic side of winemaking. And, you know, that's where the name artistry came about that you know this is the blending process is more the artistic side of things so artistry would just seem like a a perfect fit for the name of our red wine blend because this is our our shift of left brain right brain you know it's uh it's the, the time where the the winemakers kind of focused on you know the the art of winemaking as a sense and now another hat that a winemaker needs to wear is kind of like an architectural hat, right? So you have all of these wines, you have your sub AVA cabs, and then you have the Petit Syrah, um, the Zin, and then the Artistry. Is there an architectural concept of at, when it comes time for blending, right? Do you start someplace and work your way to you know, what order are you going in? Are you doing your, okay, these are the barrels that I want to go into my cab. And then, you know, these barrels are my favorite barrels. So they're going to go into that single AVA designated. And now I have this reserve for artistry. Like what's that architecture in your brain? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. We're, we are always thinking about that. Um, when we sit down and taste, you know, something to kind of keep in mind, we're tasting a composite blend of the whole lot, right? So we may have made decisions to use that in the blend, but what we have to do thereafter is go back and taste it, the individual barrels. So when we're doing that portion of it is when we start making decisions where we're like, you know what, this particular barrel, 
And I hate when I only have one of a particular barrel. I like, I love it when we have at least a couple few options of it, because if it's something you really enjoy, you want many of them, right? right. You, know, you want to say, I want to put one in this one and one in this one and this one. But um, <clears throat> to focus on uh, the sub AVAs, because we specifically are designating them from that, that region. And, you know, it's not that we have 20 Diamond Mountain vineyards. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, we have to make sure that we can make that blend. But we also want those leftovers. So when we contract for the grapes, if they're, you know, if they're from another uh, vineyard, the, the mindset is, okay, how much do we actually need for those sub-ABAs? Okay, we need X amount. All right, I want a little bit more because I want to be able to use it in our other blends. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, when we're, we're in there tasting through the barrels. That's kind of when we're starting to make the decisions of, all right, well, this particular barrel makes the cab really bold and big tannins uh, really showcases that part of it. This one is more of the earth tones and, you know, you know, it's got that leathery tobacco note to it. Um, even some mushrooms. So cool. That's interesting, but you know, maybe we only want one barrel of that in this blend and the other barrels can go to the other blends. So it, it is, yeah, to your point, there's an architecture kind of mindset of how do we build this and what are the pieces we want to use and what we, what, what would they do to add, you know, layers of complexity to even our bigger blends when we start making our, you know, artistry is not a huge blend, but, you know, it's a step up from the production of our sub ABA wines, which can only be like, you know, 200 cases, let's say. Artistry, we will usually do about 1500 cases. So okay. still not huge, but, you know, another step up. And then, as I mentioned, when we start making our Napa Valley Cabernet, you know, we could be in the 10,000 plus range. So, those layers of complexity are important. Uh, it's just a much bigger blend. So, you know, their impact, you know, it's smaller amounts or is lesser, but I still think they're really important. And then when it comes time to your small batch fermentations, it now you've been with Gerard, so I don't know. Do, have you ever been at a facility that does just large batch fermentation? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, our company, we have other wineries of ours that are much, much larger than ours. Um, and it's about, and, you know, we're talking, you know, that can do one of our biggest tanks, our biggest tank is, uh, could do up to 32 tons. Um, uh, we have wineries that do, you know, 100 plus ton ferments. So, yeah, there's plenty of them around. And what, what do you think is the difference as a winemaker? The because there's got to be a different mindset between having these large batch fermentations and then having all of these little babies that you've got to take care of. It's like one child versus having triplets or quadruplets or <laughs> sextuplets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely some different mentalities. I mean, you usually in the larger facilities where you have larger uh, fermentations, there's much more mechanicalized you know processes okay. where you know, it's a push of a button to do things. Um, and I'm not, a, I'm not saying that I wouldn't even want to do that in some of the aspects of our winery. We just haven't gotten to that point with ours. We have, we have a little more coddling going on, I think, in our, in our world at this size, uh, with these much smaller ferments, you know, where you can, you can have much, you can amplify challenges uh, on a smaller fermentation that may be less noticeable in a much bigger one. Um, oh, okay. you, you're a little more forgiving in a bigger fermentation if there's problems along the way. Whereas 
a really small fermentation, you have, you have challenges with it. Um, that's all you got. <laughs> you know, right. This is three tons of your Diamond Mountain Cab. You can't mess it up. So um, the anxiety is there for sure, uh, just naturally built in. But um, the focus on, you know, paying attention to these, um, you know, when I often describe uh, kind of the life of wine to, let's say, an intern, I mentioned to them that they're actually here to help us babysit our, our infants, right? These grapes are coming in the door and they're, they're just newly born to become wine. And what they're doing from this, this point in time, we're walked in the door till let's say we, we put it off to college when it goes into a barrel. Um, you know, it's a short period of time to, to much like raising a child, uh, you're going to help instill, you know, the characteristics that are going to help, help make that wine who it's going to be, you know, and it's a, it's a small window of taking really good care of it, giving it all the right nutrients and food and, love and attention and uh for you know for us that's pump overs that's uh nutrients that we add to the for the yeast to be healthy and make sure that the yeast has a, a nice or let's call it boring development and and uh fermentation whereas if it, it's too fast and too crazy a fermentation we lose some aspects of the winemaking so these are things that we we think about when we kind of explain to our interns that like when you're here we're going to rely on you to help us just, you know, coddle these and make sure everything goes right with them because we know what will come of it. If we can keep all those things in check, uh, it'll make the wine even better. So, you know, it's, it's kind of looking at it in that aspect that we want to, we want to be there. Uh, that's why, for, that's why a harvest is such an important time for us. It's, it's a lot of hours, a lot of work, but it's, you know, the one time to get it right in, right. in the development of the wine. Right. And now, do, are you using, um, how are you choosing your yeast? Is each, are you using commercial or native? We use, uh, we use a combination of it in the sense that uh, we have some that are naturally start fermenting. But um, I've long been a fan of, of eventually making the decision of choosing what's going to finish a fermentation. Um, that is important. And native yeast, <laughs> yeah, native yeasts are, are they, they can be really cool and, and showcase some really interesting things in wine. But if they don't do their, their ultimate job, um, if they stall out or you have problems with them, that's where, you know, they, you can be wor more worried about other problems in the wine. So for me, it's important that we, we come in at some point and we're instilling something that is, you know, tried and true for us. Uh, and to that end, we have specific yeast that we use for Cab versus Zen, as an example, uh, Chardonnay you know, versus even Sauvignon Blanc, um, just because there's yeast that, that offer characteristics that are more, you know, traditionally um, more, in, in, you know, part of what you would look for in that particular varietal wine. So you, you find a yeast that works really well with Sauvignon Blanc that gives you you know, some nice floral notes, but also, you know, uh, showcases some of the citrus characteristics you may want. Um, you know, in a Cabernet yeast, it helps build structure, but at the same time kind of accent darker fruit notes, whereas the Zen might, you might look for something that has more, let's say, mixed berry characteristics to it. So yeast, yeast choice or, or kind of every winemaker has an opinion. Everyone has their favorites. Um, I'm also the mindset that I want to keep learning. So over the years, we've tried many different yeasts. And usually we do this in a small format. 
and try it on a smaller lot and then see how those nuances are. So anything new to us, even though we like to explore, usually takes two or three years mm -hmm. till we get acclimated to it and say, okay, this is what we want to do. But I like, I like being open-minded to the fact that we, we never know what our next great thing discovery could be. That is so um, true. That is so true. Yeah. If you stick to the same thing over and over again, you don't know what you're missing out on. There could be great adventures out there, right? Exactly. <laughs> so tell me, where can people find uh, Gerard Winery? How, how can they taste this wine? How can they get it in, in their glass? Well, Gerard is distributed. Uh, six of our wines are distributed throughout the country. Um, you, you'll find our, our Napa Valley Cab, um, the artistry you just mentioned, um, the Zin, uh, the Petite Syrah, and then the two whites I've been alluding to are Sauvignon Blanc and our Chardonnay as well. So those, those six wines are out in the market. Um, you know, we've been distributed around the country for quite a while. Uh, usually in the retail side, uh, you may find one or one or two in in some slightly bigger retailers, and then uh, when you get into the smaller retails, is where you might find like the Petit Syrah, Zan, and such. Um, otherwise, though, we're we're based out of Napa. We have a tasting room, as we mentioned, brand new winery uh, to us. You know, in 2018 it was built, um, so we have a tasting room there. And then, of course, we have online opportunities to purchase and uh, wine clubs that are a lot of fun as well. So lots of ways to access us. Um, we'd, we'd hope the best way would be to see you, you know, on our doorstep one day. Maybe we can share a glass and you can sit on our lovely patio and, you know, I soak it all in. I hear spectacular so views. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I, I am excited because I, when I get up there, I'm going to have to, I really want to, the whole terroir thing, I absolutely love. I love how, you know, the soil impact and the microclimate impacts things. So to do uh, a side-by-side, -side, you know, a horizontal of the different cabs is, it's gotta be an amazing experience there. So that is what I will be doing when I get up there in the near future. Well, we look forward to it for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining me and taking uh, this time out of your uh, very busy day. Did I miss anything that you want to make sure people know about Gerard? That you are on social media. I, um, but did I miss anything that? No, I just reiterate that you know we, we'd always uh, if you visit Napa Valley, come see us. You know we're we're up in the northern part of Cal up in Calistoga, uh, great spot. And some hopefully wines you'll enjoy and get some time to talk to you and chat through all the different wines we have to offer. And, um, you know, we welcome, welcome you to visit. If you can't visit us, look for us in the market and, you know, we'll, we'll wait till you can make it out here someday. And I did see they can make reservations online. So it's super simple. Yes. If you know you're going out there, make a reservation. Yeah, so. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. I have one little swig left of my old vines in that I always end with slancha. So thank you for joining me. I know, I know it's a, you, you've got water, but slancha. I've got water right now, but yeah, slancha. Thank you, Lori. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You too. <laughs> Bye. Cheers. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. 
You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. You are special, so very, very special. You are so special, you even in the Bible.